This is episode 204. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Sugar companies don't want a sugar tax and neither do farmers. But despite that, it has been implemented in many countries around the world already. But really, today, we want to figure out why you, the person who goes to the supermarket and purchases the stuff, why you also might not be in favour of a sugar tax. Sure, it's going to hurt the hip pocket, but will it really have a positive impact on your health since that's meant to be the goal or intention of such a taxation? On this episode, we go through a list of some of the biggest reasons why a sugar tax would not be helpful to both industry, population health, and of course, you at home. You ready? Let's dive in. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Welcome back to the podcast. And I just quickly want to say a big thank you if you are a regular listener, a new listener, a listener that's been around since the start. A big thank you because not too long ago, and you might have seen this in some of the social media or if you are a part of our client networks, uh, unfortunately, Spotify shut down our hosting platform. So, the way that podcasting works is that... um, Basically, you put your podcast on a hosting platform and that hosting platform distributes the audio out to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the places. And Spotify are trying to make a move to own the podcast industry and they're buying up a lot of these little companies, these little hosting platforms to sort of monopolize the market. Um, And one of them that they purchased is the one that we've been on since the start. So, what does that mean? That meant that we lost all download numbers. We lost all positioning in all charts in every single country in the world. Um, and we went back to zero, which has significantly hampered our progress. Um, and it's very, very em- evident on the back end for our data that things have taken a big hit. So um, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for being a loyal listener, listening to the show, helping us get back into the charts, help us get our numbers back up so that we can, uh, the system identifies our podcast as a podcast that should be lifted a little bit higher in the algorithm so people can find it. So thank you. Thank you for your help and support. And um, as I've said before, there are four and a half million podcast options on the internet for you to listen to. So, incredibly grateful that you choose uh, the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast as as the one that you want to listen to each week, along with, I'm sure, a, a number of other fantastic shows. I have many friends with great shows and there's no doubt plenty of gems out there I haven't uncom- uncovered myself. So, I wanted to take this moment uh, just to be really appreciative and thankful. But uh, in the meantime, as you know, in 2022, it's my mission to coach 300 people to get control of their emotional eating so they can lose weight and actually keep it off without counting calories or eating rabbit food. And having this podcast get to as many ears as possible is very much a part of that mission. So, uh, recently, you would have heard uh, on episode two. 202, we brought up the conversation around whether or not we should pay a sugar tax and that podcast was all about supporting the idea. Yes, it was all the four arguments or at least a short collection of really important four arguments for that uh, particular perspective. And so, on today's episode, I want to take us back around on the sugar tax conversation, junk food tax, sugar tax, fat tax. There's been all sorts of variations of this thing, sugar sweetened beverage tax, which is obviously sodas and soft drink and um, fruit juices and all all sorts of things fall into that category. Um, And so, 
I want to go down the other side of the the column. We're going to go down the cons list and the idea of this sugar sweetened beverage, sugary deliciousness food tax that's possibly going to be a thing here in Australia and in many countries because it's actually been a thing uh, in 50 countries so far, uh, whether it be for a short period of time or whether it just be in small areas of those countries or whether it be the entire country and it's still happening. Uh, a lot of people have used it to test and see what uh, is possible in relation to improving the health outcomes of the population because as you are no doubt aware, we are just moving at a catastrophic rate towards very much lowering the life expectancy of the planet, of the human race, uh, because we live such devastatingly unhealthy lives. And even though the uh, death rate is still pretty high, we actually, our years of contribution to society, our families and to our own happiness and health are actually reducing because we end up so sick by such a young age that we are in wheelchairs, we're sitting in the kitchen table every single day is the only task we do. We don't get out much. We have low motivation to experience life because of the types of diet and lifestyle that we consume. And so, the one of the aims fundamentally from a sugar tax, aside from generating revenue from the government, uh, which, you know, some people are or are not a fan of. Um, the One of the main aims is to hopefully move us towards a place in which we can actually start turning around this absolute behemoth of a uh, complementary set of industries, one being the food and agricultural industry, which directly feeds the pharmaceutical industry. One causes the health problems. One gives you the illusion of solving it for the most part. Right, there was a bit of my cynicism in that comment, but um, and I mean that in chronic disease, the medical system's very useful in many ways, and without the medical system, we wouldn't be able to do a lot of things that we do today. However, there are many fantastic alternatives that I myself have used that I would encourage many people to use. But the important part of that, which is a you know, I guess what a big part of my passion is that your mindset has to facilitate behavior change and doing things differently. However, in the meantime, governments are going to try and use taxes to help us out with this problem or that's at least the way they're selling it to us. And so, as I mentioned, episode 202 is all about the uh, four arguments. And look, I've done assignments on these topics before, um, both sides of the argument. And it's actually... You know, it's I'm pretty flexible. I'm kind of in the middle. It's it's worthy of discussion. But because we put our votes forward for the politicians that essentially do this stuff, I think it's important that we know both sides of the story. Um, at least at least a little synopsis that can begin to give you some understanding as to why some of these policy decisions, which inform the world that your kids will grow up in and that we've lived in, uh, it's important to know this stuff. Because without the knowledge, you won't be able to do anything about it, and you'll be a victim to the health situation that's created by the current food policy that we have in place. Um, and so, without further ado, I want to get into it with you. Um, so, if you remember, if you haven't listened to the other one, I'd encourage you probably to jump over to episode 202 first, um, although you can do it in, in, in either, either order, although I'm going to respond to some of the remarks that I made in the other one on this one. So, we're going to start right here with the comparison to the tobacco industry. So, in uh, the other podcast it, and very much in some of the uh, literature and research, 
the idea of a sugar tax is compared to um, the tobacco tax and saying that it was really quite effective. Um, it did a lot of good things for a lot of people. It reduced the rate of all sorts of different cancers and it reduced consumption and it priced people out of the market, which is the idea of the sugar tax as well, that we're starting to price people out of the market of purchasing these unhelpful foods. Um, however, the reality is that the comparing the tobacco um, regime, let's call it, um, along with a sugar tax, it's just not comparable whatsoever because there are a few layers here. Sugar is food. Humans need some type of food to eat. Uh, and this is why emotional eating is also challenging too because it's unlike drugs or alcohol where you don't actually need it to live or tobacco. So people, no one was confused about needing tobacco to live. Everybody knew that's like, oh, I don't really need cigarettes to survive every day. Well, whereas people are much more confused about the idea of sugar or junk food because they see it as food and they know that they need, as a human, they need food in order to live. Um, so it's confusing and doesn't have the same uh, public messaging and understanding as simply as a tobacco regime had and pushed out to the people basically through all sorts of avenues, which is kind of the next point, which is that tobacco had a much more comprehensive approach to altering the behavior of consumers. It was not just a tax. As we saw at service stations and gas stations and supermarkets, all of the advertising started to disappear. The boxes started having these diseased body parts on them to all in the attempt to discourage people from consumption some of the laws and legislations uh, changed, like obviously in the marketing and advertising space. Um, some of the stuff that uh, companies were allowed to do or not do, that changed. The the amount of sponsorship they were allowed to give to events um, and their sponsorship and donation abilities changed. So it was a very comprehensive uh Process. There was a lot of public advertising on the television about getting off cigarettes. Um, they had a helpline. You know, there was so many layers to the tobacco uh, defense system, <laughs> or the rather the offense uh, offensive system in order to get people off it. That it just doesn't compare to just adding uh, a dollar value increase to food. So. Tobacco are much more comprehensive. So there's really no comparison between those two ideas because a lot of the arguments for the sugar tax are leveraged from the fact that tobacco was so effective. However, the other thing is that with sugar and similar to tobacco, I guess, is that there are so many lifestyle, social and psychological factors that contribute to sugar and junk food consumption. Again, another reason that my emotional eating and body confidence program exists is because it's not as easy as just telling people the information, right? If people don't really do the deep inner work by and lifestyle, social and psychological, so the deep inner work on themselves, psychological, uh, the deep inner work on their day-to-day uh, -day life, which might involve the, the job that they have or the house that they live in or the suburb they live in or um, the set of behaviors that they go through on a weekend. And that leads to social. The people you spend your time with, the family that you're in, the partner you, that, that you have, all of these things contribute to being uh, a sugar consumer or a cigarette consumer or somebody who can't say no to alcohol or they're all contributing factors. So unless unless we're coming at the sugar problem from a comprehensive uh, regime, it's not a good word, but I need a better one. <laughs> um, you know, the, the sort of the, the tax that they want to bring in to curtail behavior, then without without going at it from all of these angles, it's the same as the problem with the medical system. If you try and solve a complex problem 
with a simple answer in one particular area without acknowledging all of the other parts of the system, it's going to be meaningless beyond the, the initial treatment. The, pro- the person would be back. The amount of people that I work with that got bariatric surgery and then over the years found some kind of way to gain it all back, you've got to deal with the lifestyle, the social and the psychological factors, which again, the tobacco, the tobacco um, sort of defense system and each part of it did it dealt with lots of different parts of society however hashtag maddie ruins everything if you look closely enough tobacco companies like all smart business owners they have adapted and those companies are still very much thriving in a a very different uh avenue of society and they've shifted in a big way to vaping Vaping is the new smoking and it's actually a lot worse because when you burn through a cigarette, you get to the end of the cigarette and it's over. Whereas these, um, these, some of these vapes have like, like a lot, a lot of nicotine in them compared to your average cigarette. Um, and so, yeah, and these kids can, can do it in class. Lots of teenagers do it. Lots of adults do it. You don't have to go out for a smoke break. So, you're not regulated by your environment. You can literally just suck on your vape at your desk. Nobody would even know. So, you're downing a much larger amount of crap that some of those things have in them. And I'm obviously generalizing and I'm obviously not going deep on vaping right now. Maybe I should. I don't know. Um, let me know if you think that, that would be a cool episode. But as much as conventional tobacco smoking seems to have you know, being shifted into the not socially acceptable anymore category. There's a shitload of it still going on. Lots. And there's still plenty of lung disease because again, it's a complex problem that involves not just cigarette smoke, but your diet, your lifestyle, your mindset, your family, the house you live in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, all right, that's point one. Point one, get off your soapbox, Maddie. Um, all right, I'm getting the fuck down. Or, or am I? Hang on. Here we go. We're on to point two. Um, this is a big one. So, a lot of the studies that um, that I looked at just that was sort of against it, um, or at least assessing the data, they found that consumers end up shopping elsewhere. So, like... They brought this um, tax in. In many instances, it was the sugar-sweetened beverage tax, but it also happened with um, a different sugar tax and it also happened with a fat tax. Um, they relocate their economic resources, aka they look for a cheaper sugar supply. It's kind of like prohibition. You know, prohibition didn't make alcohol go away. It just sent it underground, made it more risky to, to locate and get your hands on, and it made it really expensive. And so... The thing that this does in a, in a local community or in any type of country or space is that it negatively influences local small businesses well, and all businesses, but small businesses particularly that rely on, you know, these kind of small impulse sales that, that people make at the register or on their way out because small communities and even suburbs in cities, they rely on the small businesses in the local area to be able to, you know, sell these products to keep the, the town the town or suburb or um, village or whatever bubbling away, um, you know, on these small businesses who also they themselves live in the area. And so, if, if you're pricing people out of the market and there's a market that's not too far away where they can go and spend those resources to get the same sugar hit, then guess what? 
They're going to do it. And in Berkeley in the USA, this is exactly what they found. They found that people were going to nearby towns and nearby counties in order to do their shopping once this tax was introduced. And in fact, in Norway, they found another similar thing. They found that for the people that lived in towns that were somewhat close to the border, that cross-border shopping went up, significantly rose uh, for those in Norway Right, so they were crossing the border to Sweden and they were buying cheaper, cheaper foods in the the Swedish shops uh, and buying all of their food, their shopping, their groceries, everything there. And one of the one of the things that they did mention, which is which is probably no surprise for this part of the world, um, is that chocolate went up. The purchasing of chocolate in Sweden went up and it dropped in Norway. Um, and I guess as well, and I mentioned this, I guess a fat tax before, which is like a. Um, Whilst not quite a sugar tax or a junk food tax per se, they did have a fat tax in Denmark and the operative word being they did (laughs) in the past. Um, Because they had to increase the price of food, it actually meant that people started again cross-border shopping so would start locating their shopping from Germany or Sweden. And so it has like this double down effect of like the system puts adds a tax, price goes up. Less consumers in the marketplace are spending their money on this already increased uh, cost of uh, buying food and therefore the price of food goes up even further because these companies need to stay alive with a smaller client base. And so you end up in this thing that ends up totally collapsing, which is less people paying a higher price and then that, that just continually gets further and further out of proportion until they obviously ended up throwing out the, the fat tax in Denmark because it was, um, you know, it was having such a damaging effect on consumers. However, there is a little side note to mention and that's that uh, there was a few lobbying groups that were a part of getting rid of the fat tax as well. Uh, And again, lobbying groups, I think I've said this on a podcast before, but lobbying groups is really just a legally uh, appropriate way to say we're paying people money to do what we want. (laughs) Um, Which, you know, we all do every single day. However, in the space of policy and governing people it gets a bit gray and a bit questionable in some spaces um but you know and again you know you've got to i think one of the one of the good things that makes a good thought leader or somebody that is able to think rationally about complex problems is the ability to put on multiple hats right so if you put on the business owner hat and you start seeing like the business that you run that employs hundreds if not thousands of people um so you're putting food on the table for thousands and you start seeing you know the monthly revenue drop and you've got obviously it's likely you've got all sorts of loans and debt and resources and assets that are all living on the off the fact um, living from the fact that this business makes a certain amount of money, and you start seeing that it's like shit, like you know I'm gonna I don't want to have to fire twenty five people, you know I don't want to have to uh, be in a situation myself where I'm having to be evicted out of my home, and and you know I want to be able to keep doing this business that I love, and so it makes total sense that from a business owner perspective you would not want this tax that might cause negative consequences to the sales of your business. So you know we've got to we've got to go go around the table and swap hats with everybody so that we can be in a position to understand everybody's experience in order to make um, a decision at the end, which is not going to satisfy everybody, you know? And I think in my mind, it's a conversation of short-term industry pain for long-term human health benefit Uh, because entrepreneurs and business people are some of the best people at adapting to change and figuring out an alternative solution. Um, 
So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Next one, number three. So a tax, a sugar tax hurts the food industry. So this goes back to the, to the thinking of business owners that I was just talking about. Um, because a tax, its literal point is to actively decrease the purchases of a particular product from a group of people that in this instance are connected to a subset of companies. It literally is targeted at hurting those companies economically, which interestingly then goes on to conflict with the Australian company law, which I'm sure many countries have, which um, obligates uh, companies to act in the best interest of their shareholders, which is maximizing profits. So, if sugar companies are not seen to be opposing this type of uh, price hike for their consumers and or their manufacturing process, their shareholders are obviously going to kick up shit, aren't they? And be like, we should be lobbying against this. Quick, throw money at it. Throw money at this problem, aka use a lobbying group to convince politicians to not go ahead with this, right? And so... Yeah, it's a bit of a conflict. It's like, well, the Australian government's setting out to directly oppose the same laws that they created in regards to how companies should operate. So there's a bit of a bit of an economic conflict there in regards to yeah how the government manages population health and how companies regulate their investors. Of which you know maybe you listening are an investor in a sugar company uh, in some way through your superannuation or maybe you've got some money in an S and P five hundred or something like that. You know, and so maybe you actually have a vested interest in that same thing, right? So it's tricky and. <laughs> The other thing that they argue, um, and this is kind of funny, this kind of makes me laugh, is because the sugar companies actively argue that they should not be punished as a business for the lack of control that their consumers have over their own decision making. (laughs) Like, yeah, but nah. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like... 
When you make an addictive substance that devastates your consumer's health over a lifetime of being a committed um, and loyal brand advocate for your particular product, like you probably should care about the health of that consumer. Like, I don't know. Maybe that's just me and I'm not thinking too business savvy enough, you know. However, there's part of me and, and I don't know. Do you agree? There's part of me that's also like, yeah. Yeah, you have to get your own shit together. Like, don't blame the sugar companies. I mean, we we can blame the sugar companies. And, and maybe it's a scenario of um, it's not your fault, but it's definitely your responsibility, you know? Um, because I think until we're, until we're taking responsibility, we're going to be the victim to any advertising and marketing system, campaign, food, dopamine-seeking behavior pattern, social media, all of that kind of stuff. Like, we're, it's all our choice. Like... We're strongly led in the direction or misled in the direction of these things by being unconscious and not present and not grounded in the current moment and honoring what's best for us. And there's a whole host of reasons why that's true. But also the reality is no matter how many drugs you take, no matter how many things you do or quick fix diets or, um, you know, life detoxes you do from people or jobs or whatever, until you take responsibility for being the common denominator in all your life's challenges, then yeah, nobody else can take responsibility for the situation that exists in your life but you. Um, And that's the same for me too. So maybe it's, yeah, maybe it's not your fault, but definitely your responsibility. But I just find that argument funny because it's like these big sugar companies are just like gaslighting the shit out of everybody. (laughs) The other thing that they also suggest is that this sugar tax or at least the sugar sweetened beverage tax. And um, this is quoted from uh, a country that actually put it into place. And interestingly, this came from Coca-Cola. Um... They actually contribute to the promotion of health with their generous donations into the health sector, right? So, Coca-Cola's defense against the tax is that they already give back. Um, And in this particular uh, journal article I was reading, they were quoting the fact that they've built gyms in California, that they've run health initiatives in different, um, you know, second and third world countries to try and help the health of those areas. They give money to lobbying groups. Remember those lobbying groups that they give money to are probably, I don't know, but they're probably going to be helping shift things in Coca-Cola's favor. And so, I think it's like if you know you sell an addictive product and then you try and buy your way out of being regulated by saying we donate to health initiatives, it's like, I don't know if that's a fair trade. I don't think that's a fair trade because it's like... Yeah, it's just not, I don't know. I don't know. Well, this is for you to decide. Like, you know, I'm trying to figure this out, right? Um, As well, by looking at both sides of this conversation. And the other thing is too, and we talked about this in the episode 202, was that the people that are most affected by price hikes in food are the lower socioeconomic people, right? And lower socioeconomic people are the most likely to be involved in employment opportunities with sugar companies. So, if you've got uh, a tax that directly aims to decrease the sales of a particular company and or group of companies and the main staff or the main employment demographic is lower socioeconomic people, then we've got job opportunities for that portion of society dropping and probably a little bit in all areas of society. But they're going to drop, um, which is the exact group that's affected by the tax. So, they're going to have an increased financial burden because they're going to have to you know, be out of work or get another job or their work will be decreased. And then they're going to go to the supermarket and pay more for food. It's like, you know, you fucked either way, basically. So, that's, that's an argument for it, right? 
it's an argument, which is, yeah, it's just one of the interesting uh, things to consider. Because I don't think doing nothing is an option here. If it was, like, I would have just said that at the start. <laughs> We've definitely got a sugar problem in the world. Sugar sweetened beverage problem. We've got one of those. We've definitely got a junk food problem, you know. So, uh, which is why Australia is considering and has been considering for a number of years bringing in a junk food tax. Um, hence the episodes. But many, many, many countries in the world will be seeking it. Uh, like some kind of response. So their whole population doesn't die out from medication overdose, basically. <laughs> um, the next one is the reformulation argument. So you might have remembered on the, the other episode where I said that this was a good thing because the interesting thing they found in the UK was that that behavior and uh, purchasing didn't change. So they had the same number of purchases, which on face value, you would argue the tax did not work and it was not effective. And, and however... It had an opposite effect at the other end of the spectrum where businesses uh, decided to compete with with the rules by saying, all right, if XYZ qualifies as being taxable, then we're going to come up with a new beverage uh, recipe for our sugar-sweetened beverages, which contains less sugar that then qualifies us outside of the classification of XYZ. And therefore, the company doesn't take the hit and neither does the consumer because the consumer is paying the same price and having a pretty much similar experience than they were having before. However, they're getting less sugar in, their, in, in what they're consuming. However, this is, the, this is the podcast against this, right? So, the catch is that when you reformulate and based on the specifications of the tax... If you are adding in artificial sweeteners or different ways of sweetening these beverages... Well, you're not really making them any healthier. And if the goal of the tax is to make the population healthier, it's going to be pretty difficult to measure the likelihood of swapping out sugar for stevia in Coca-Cola, for instance, right? Or any other type of beverage or, or situation. So, you, I, I'm not convinced that I don't think this reformulation is a good idea unless there's laws that come in as part of this. And I think this should be a fully fledged system or approach, not just tax, but like the tobacco stuff, like, you know, across the board, there should be laws and rules that come in around the, pro- the, the products that recipes can contain uh, and whether it be artificial sweeteners and whether it be certain volume of sugar and certain percentage of artificial sweeteners. And plus, many of these uh, compounds cause plenty of, the, plenty of similar issues with diabetes and weight gain uh, and lead to overconsumption of other foods because your brain is identifying that we've been triggered that we've got something sweet but there's actually no sugar in the system. Um, there's, there's layers of reasons why it's not a great idea. And so, which is why, and I've done an episode with the guy that wrote or the guy that co-authored uh, Sugar Proof, uh, Michael Gorin, um, who's a fantastic human. You should check out that episode which is episode 181. And he talks about the fact that if we're talking in the context of kids uh, from memory uh, with him, but if you're going to consume sugar, like just consume real sugar because there's so many other flow on effects from not consuming it correctly. Plus many of these compounds are untested, um, you know, and and there's likely going to be all of these new compounds and new flavor enhancers created in response to the sugar tax. So the companies can get around it and not harm the the hip pocket of their consumers, but also not harm themselves in in regards to their um, shareholders and and revenue, uh, quarterly revenue, that type of thing. So 
yeah, we don't know the health. We don't know the health impacts of many of these things. We don't know what's going to be created and how damaging it's going to be. So there's unknown health outcomes, which I think is a bad part of the equation to have when you're in a situation where the goal is better health outcomes. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, we'll add a tax, but let's experiment with these unknown chemicals in the meantime. Oh, nah, I don't think that's a smart way to go about it. Um, and I guess the other thing is too is that there's with the reformulation of these products, many of these companies have already and will continue to leverage their reformulation as a marketing opportunity and and therefore be like a healthier, low sugar version, no sugar, uh, much better for you than our old recipe. All of this kind of just bullshit, like, which is just not true. I mean, true in the fact that, yes, it's different to their old recipe and yes, it's, you know, it's maybe not as deadly as it used to be, but it's certainly not a fucking piece of kale. (laughs) We didn't go from, you know, we didn't go from like stinking heap of shit all the way across to green vegetables and, and beef liver. We literally just went from really, really shitty gross turd to slightly less gross turd. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, but they're going to use every single part of this as a marketing opportunity to not only keep their old consumers, but leverage more consumers that are like slightly more healthy than, than you know, the average person that believe that they are more healthy and they only drink healthier drinks. And there's many people that feel they're making a healthy choice when they buy diet Coke or diet soft drink or diet soda, which again, it's not a bad step in the right direction. It's a good step in the right direction, but it's nowhere near being a healthy choice. Um, you're on a health, uh, you're on a journey of healthy choices and that's certainly moving the right direction. But I just want to be clear, these companies are going to mislead the shit out of you. So this reformulation, whilst on the front end sounds good, there's also some consequences on the back end which need to be regulated as part, as, as part of any comprehensive strategy to improve the population through uh, lowering sugar consumption. And here's a really funny one to top this top this podcast off with. Um, and we can thank our legends at Coca-Cola for this one too. <laughs> um, so, they basically argued that there's going to be a dip in the industry because... Uh, and not just sugar, all industry, all economy. Because they're going to... They say, this is what's going to happen. Low energy workers are going to be produced as a result of this tax. And so what they mean is that the sugar industry states that the productivity of their workers and the workers across the entire economy are supported by the consumption of their high sugar products. People drink or eat these foods for energy and without them, most businesses will see a drop in productivity of their workers and thus a drop in revenue. So they are basically saying because most people drink Coke to stay awake at their desk or Red Bull um, or they go to the cafe and get a a, a smoothie or a juice, which is really just sugar loaded, um, you know, uh, healthy stuff, which is super sugar loaded, uh, you know, that people will start falling asleep at their desks, having less energy, that type of thing. And I have the same, I have the same kind of gripe with the diabetes, the conventional medical diabetes industry, like eat jelly beans to keep your blood sugar up. You're focusing on the wrong end of the problem. Like, sure, there's going to be a drop in uh, productivity. Let's let's say there is. Yes. But again, it's short-term industry pain for long-term human health benefit. And guess what? Healthy humans are productive as fuck. 
<laughs> like healthy people that get good sleep, that don't need to snack five minutes before bed, that don't need a snack when they need to wake up in the middle of the night, that don't need morning tea and don't need afternoon tea because they don't experience energy crashes throughout the day and they don't experience the 3 p.m. slump because they haven't eat, eaten last night's pasta or a giant bread roll or sandwich from the cafe. They are much more productive and I know because my program and the services that I've been operating for the last four years produce them. We produce people that have more energy. The program literally started out as the ultimate energy upgrade. (laughs) Um, And so, I have the same argument here. It's like, it's just ridiculous. It's like as if humans weren't fully capable of being super productive before the sugar industry came along. Like, fuck off. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So... My argument again is that yes, there'll be a short-term drop in uh, productivity whilst people figure out how to navigate their bodies uh, in a better way with food, nutrition and the fuel that they put into it. But there's dividends that are going to be paid off for them in the long run and thus those companies. So, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. So, I guess what do I think? Like, what do I think? Oh, so I guess I've shared, you know, over these two podcasts, 202 and 204, you know, the fours and against and just sort of some general uh, dot points that came out of my research and my old assignments. Um, so, what do I think? I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that most people struggle to navigate their own social lifestyle and psychological factors without one ever being aware of them. Most people don't know that they struggle with those reasons and most people don't know that those are the reasons they can't stick to a diet because they need to deal with their mindset and psychology. So, in the presence of being aware of the fact that the masses that consume this stuff are unaware that their psychology is the most important part of their health journey, I actually think the only way to tangibly affect somebody's behavior and only I should probably withdraw that word, one of the most convincing ways to alter somebody's behavior tangibly is to price them out of the market. Because whilst I've got all of these idealistic ideas about how the uh, medical system and the sugar industry and the agricultural system should be run, uh, that's not an overnight job. That's a multi-generational job of which I hope this podcast and my work are a part of in some small way. But I think one of the things we have to do is, uh, yeah, is, is bring in a tax to price people out of the market. However, I am very much of the belief that we should use the capital raised in order to not do health in, not, not do health initiatives or medical programs, but that money should go into educating people into the psychology, social, uh, social lifestyle stuff so that they, the next generation or at least people on the daily can stop the consumption, they're priced out of the market and then have explained to them why in these educational platforms, these advertising in the same way we did for cigarettes, right? So, people can start to really understand like this is harmful, this is dangerous and so we can start seeping this knowledge into people's psychology and into their mind and into their, you know, their, their bank of decision-making wisdom that we all hold. So, the other part of this that I think, which is an absolute flaw of our agricultural system, is that if a tax does not either generate revenue to then go towards farmers that produce healthy food or a part of the tax, sugar tax or junk food tax is not to uh, remove the subsidies from sugar farmers and wheat farmers and grain farmers, then we're fucked either way because you're in a situation where you're putting up the price of 
food, which affects everyone, but the lower socioeconomic people are affected who have the a disproportionately high degree of obesity and disease, but you're not giving them a healthy alternative. So you're just either going to increase the likelihood of things like starvation and homelessness or um, malnutrition. So you've got to be in a situation where a tax needs to facilitate a healthy alternative. And if it doesn't economically facilitate a healthy alternative, particularly for lower socioeconomic people, then it's, it's effectively redundant because you're left with the decision of eat or not eat, you know, or ration food or have plenty. And so... Whilst I'm simplifying my answer here, which really needs a deep discussion about my actual detailed thoughts factoring in all levels of the the food system and the food chain, because that's the kind of consideration policy change comes with, is that subsidized farmers are one of the biggest problems of our our entire food industry. Um, And I know that doesn't necessarily talk to sugar-sweetened beverages or any that kind of stuff, but it would because if those sugar companies, sugar farmers, grain farmers, corn farmers, if they were not subsidized and incentivized and controlled so heavily by the agricultural behemoths and pharmaceutical industries, and I say pharmaceutical industry because many of the pharmaceutical companies in the world also are the biggest pesticide and herbicide controllers in the world, which, you know, have very unfavorable relationships with farmers, then until we factor that into the equation, I don't see a sugar tax being helpful. However, I assume that uh, in the world that exists in my head, if the the finance generated, the capital generated from a sugar tax goes towards making healthy food cheaper for lower socioeconomic people, then I actually think it would work because middle economic and um, upper economic people um, won't really notice the difference because the reality is when we're talking about a sugar tax, we're talking about cents per litre. We're talking about 12 cents, 17 cents, 50 cents per litre. So for middle class and upper class, it's negligible, Um, you know, and so which again increases the priority and uh, need for education and psychological lifestyle, social um, cues, influences, advertising, marketing, policy, legislation in order to have a positive effect on the health of those demographics because it's less likely that the tax will have an an impact on those groups. Um, So I hope that answers your question, even if you didn't have one. (laughs) (laughs) So that's going to be it for me on this topic. I, again, would love to hear what you think. I would love to hear what you think. It's such an interesting conversation and one that uh, I think we should have more often because, yeah, food policy, food security, and those things literally shape the health of our world. And it's intrinsically connected to the health that you will experience and that your kids will experience. So I think it's a really important conversation. So I'd love to hear from you. What do you think about this? Would love to see you share it on social media. Uh, Give me a tag if it's a platform that I am not deplatformed from. (laughs) I should try and rectify that situation. Um, But give me a tag, share it with your friends, family, anybody like that. All my links and handles will be down in the show notes below. And if it really tickled your pickle today, then I would be super grateful for a five-star review on Apple Podcast and or Spotify. Um, So just head over there, give us five stars if this vibes with you. And particularly on Apple Podcast, if you feel compelled to write your opinion and thoughts um, on any of the topics we've discussed in a review, that would be so helpful because it helps people find the show and figure out if it would be for them or not. And we definitely want to spread the good word. I definitely do. And I hope you do too. I thank you for hanging out with me here today and I will see you on the next one. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.